this week on Pep Talk. R-W-B-O-K. What's that? It's a small South African gazelle. I think it was about 10 or 15 years later, the uh, registrar came back and said, uh, well, everybody now knows that Reebok is a sports shoe. The animal is very much secondary. Wow. So you overtook the animal. Absolutely. I needed to have products on shore in America. I needed a distributor in America. In 1968, when did I get there? 1979. 11 years to get 11 years to get there. That's persistent sales. It doesn't happen overnight. (laughs) No. I think people call it resilience these days. Yeah, resilience. (laughs) At that point, I knew we could make a five-star shoe, and we did. Aztec. Aztec's the five-star shoe. At that point, you're beating Nike, right? I mean, you're the five-star shoe. And that changed our lives forever. Our mission is to help 10 million people start and grow a business. In Pep Talk, we interview industry-leading experts from around the world who share actionable know-how and life lessons. That's why we're excited to team up with GoDaddy to power Pep Talk. I have been using GoDaddy for years and would promote them on this podcast even if they didn't sponsor us. You can use their free website builder and start your online business at no cost, for example. You don't need lots of money to start a business if you leverage the tools at the Purposeful Project and GoDaddy. GoDaddy even help with naming a business. Check out the links in the podcast notes below to connect to GoDaddy tools. Today we have Joe Foster. He's the founder of Reebok. In 1958, an incredible company was born in the north of England and became bigger than Nike. Joe today is going to share with us his knowledge on trademarking, on sales, and give us a few stories from that time. Joe, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Simon. Yes, yes indeed. Uh, you're taking me back a long time now. Yes, We're going back, oh, what, 60 years now? 50 years and more. But uh, yes, those early days, quite quite amazing when we, when we set up a, a small factory just away from the family. We left the family because that business was dying. Totally dying, so we set up a company. But we, no, the family was J.W. Foster and Sons, and uh, we couldn't set up as J.W. Foster and Sons. We thought, well, we need a different name. So we set up as Mercury. Yeah, good idea, Mercury. The, uh, uh, the winged messenger, that was our uh, logo. Great. Why Mercury, out of interest? Why, why did Mercury become the original name for, for Reebok? Well, you know, you think of all sorts of things, and uh, I thought, well, Mercury, the wing messenger, that's like something to do with athletics, running. It's a good thing, Mercury. It sounded good. You know, it sounded something. We, we, we thought it sounded good anyway, and uh, we were happy to go with it in 1958, which we did for 18 months, and we were doing well. You know, we were, we were making money, <clears throat> and our accountant, he said, guys, you're making money, so you, you better register your name. Well, I mean... I think I was about 25 at that time, and we were still quite naive. Why do we need to register the name? Well, he said if somebody else comes along and uh, decides that, oh, Reebok shoes, they uh, not Reebok, sorry, Mercury shoes, <laughs> they're pretty good, and uh, we're going to copy you. Um, and you can't stop them because you've not registered your name. Okay, we'll register our name. So we applied to the registrar, you know, we want to register Mercury. Oh, sorry, it's pre-registered. Oh, can you imagine what we felt like? You know, we've been there 18 months and we're doing nicely and we've got all the logos, great stuff. And, okay. So, but they offered it to us for a £1,000. Now £1,000 doesn't sound much today. But, you know, we'd set up a whole factory for £250. Machinery and a lot. So you can imagine, four times that, we didn't have that money. So, uh, talking to the accountant and he said, go see a patent agent. I know this guy in Manchester, go see him. I told him, 
went to see him and okay so you can't buy it so you've got to think of a new name but uh, don't bring me one name i need 10 and i said 10 how, how can you run a business when you you know, you're thinking you've got to believe in that 10 names so you can't just come up with a name you felt you felt like you had to come up with someone you loved there was something you wanted to fall in love with yeah. a name, not just come up with 10 names for the sake of it sort of thing well yeah i mean you, you've got to think what you're doing is something that you aspire to and it's something really sort of you could think yeah i can believe in that and he pointed through the window it was a nice day in may he pointed through the window and he pointed to kodak and i'm saying kodak what's with kodak well they made the name up you know, you don't find it in any dictionary apart from the fact that it belongs to Kodak. Oh, right. So if you can make a name up, great stuff. Okay. So we go off and we're sitting around a table like we're sitting now and we're thinking of names. Now, it can get silly when you're thinking of names. And we've got a lot of silly names. But, you know, we had Cougar. Cougar Sports. That's pretty good, that. Yeah. Probably Sports. wouldn't have stood the test of time, that one. <laughs> Falcon. Falcon, Falcon Sports, yeah, That's you know, cool. not so bad. That's okay, but let me take you back to 1943. Yeah, 43 during the war. I'm young. I'm eight years old, and like with COVID, we couldn't get anywhere. You know, the seaside holidays were out. Now it was what you did at home, and they had these uh, stay-at-home holiday things. And I was entered into a race, 60-yard race. Okay, I won it. Well, I, I thought I won it fair and square, but, you know, I was wearing spike shoes because the parent company, J.W. Foster's, been going since 1895, and my grandfather is supposed to have invented the spike running shoe. I've got spike running shoes on. I'm running 60 yards, and I win. Fantastic. So I go, collect my prize. And what do I get? 1943. What do I get? A dictionary. Oh, what a wonderful prize. Yeah. And I'm saying, come on, guys, where's the ball? You know, where's the football? I'm, you know, a dictionary. Well, a bit disgusted, of course, with a dictionary. But then, and I didn't know at the time, this was a Webster's Dictionary. And a Webster's Dictionary is an American Dictionary. And there are a number of spellings in an American Dictionary which are different from the English Oxford Dictionary. However, fast forward. And uh, we're now in 1960, and I've got my American Dictionary just by my side, and we're trying to think of names, and I love the letter R. I don't know why. One of those things, like why did I pick Mercury? don't know why, just like it. And so, letter R. I open my American Dictionary, letter R. And I'm thumbing through from there, and I come across R, double E, B, O, K. What's that? It's a small South African gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle. That's it. Top of the list. Now, had I been looking at my Oxford English Dictionary, that would have been R-H-E-B-O-C-K and something. That would have been not as uh, <laughs> interesting. But, you know, by accident, something that happened in 1943, instead of getting the ball, I've got Reebok. Yeah, it's, it's a great point, isn't it? Sometimes bad luck turns into good luck, basically, <laughs> right? You, at the time, you're like, oh, no, a dictionary. But it was all part of the fate of what was what was to come, right? Well, so, yes, if you believe in fate, that yeah. was fate. The I, fact I, you I won a running race, <laughs> a running race is the actual reason you got the dictionary. Absolutely. So, it, it, feels, it feels like there was a predestined plan there for you to create something <laughs> great, wasn't it? If you, if you... Oh, absolutely fantastic. But, you know, I put this at the top of the list and I took the 10 names back to the uh, agent. He sent them through, they checked them all through, and the registrar... There's only one that was Reebok that was clear. A couple of things that uh, questioned. One was Reebok, and that was ladies' underwear. And we, uh, the the guy said, no, 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 no problem. The other one was Railbrook. Railbrook was um, Tootles made shirts called Railbrook, but he was the agent for them, so he acted for them. And he said, no, we're not going to worry about Reebok. 
So we got rebooked. Mm. One caveat from the registrar was, well, you're going to have to go in part B of the register. And we said, oh, we didn't, you know, we thought the register's a register. Okay, okay. Why is that? Well, if somebody starts making shoes out of uh, Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Mm. Okay, fine. And Jeff and I, we looked at each other and said, nah, that's never going to happen. Mm. Yeah, no. So we'll, we'll be Reebok. I think it was about 10 or 15 years later, the uh, registrar came back and said, uh, we've moved it to part A of the register. And why? Well, everybody now knows that Reebok is a sports shoe. The animal is very much secondary. Wow. So you overtook the animal in a, in a literal <laughs> trademark sense. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think what you're mentioning here, again, is very useful for people to keep an eye on that, you know, it can be a very costly exercise to start a business and then have to change it. I'm sure you had to remodel all the materials to rebrand for Reebok and, and actually for small businesses that could really hurt you if you don't think about this ahead of time. And, and even today, I feel like a lot of people don't know what this story you're telling this, this important, think about it ahead of time. And even you say registry B and people don't understand what that is. Well, and, I didn't. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, th I think it's, and you can, it's all of course on the internet, you can Google trademarks, but a lot of people get confused. So it's a, uh, it's a great story though. I love, I love the idea that you, you became more famous than the, the wonderful animal. That, uh, Absolutely. That, 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 yeah, that's that's yeah. incredible. I think um, the, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you that I felt, you know, you've got so much knowledge of, of your career and, and, and what you've achieved. Sales. Sales is something that a lot of our audience ask about. And I know you've got a lot of experience in it. And I'd love to hear your view on, you know, what makes a good salesperson? What makes a good sale? How did you manage to get uh, Reebok into America because I know that was a big deal and one of the reasons you became bigger in Nike was because of that deal. So share share your your knowledge there. Hey, that would take me all day to share everything, but yeah, you know, let's <laughs> pick some bits out of that one. Yeah, I uh, I realised that J. W. Foster's my father, my grandfather's business. They didn't really uh, recognise the fact that you've got to go out and sell your product. Um, they advertised and they, they, they used the network of athletics and that really grew the business in those, you know, the early 1900s. Brilliant, fantastic. And gold medals and world records galore. So they didn't pick up on the idea that you've got to push your product, you've got to do something. And, and we were Reebok. Uh, we, we hadn't had that famous uh, 1900s uh, world records and whatever. And I, I thought, right, I'd jump in the car, go to these uh, retailers. And in those days, there were three or four ex-footballers had sports stores and that's how the sports trade sort of run in those days so i went around calling in, in the stores and saying i'm reebok <clears throat> and the guy saying who's reebok like oh yeah well i can't I imagine that reebok. today people listening today can't imagine that no one knows who reebok is i think everybody <laughs> well, knows that was it so i show him the product and uh, he looks at me and said well look i've got adidas and i've got dunlop why do i need reebok ah and that i heard that two or three times and that was enough for me. I stopped selling. I, <coughs> I decided that's the end of that road. And we used to go around to athletics meetings. <coughs> and we used to sell out of the back of our car. And uh, all these athletes, right, I thought, just a minute, that's my business. That's my trade. And it dawned on me that uh, the three A's in those days, the Amateur Athletic Association, they produced a handbook. And in that handbook was the name and address of every secretary of every club in the country. We said about three, four hundred, where it was. All right, no brainer. That was it. A letter to everyone. <clears throat> and I offered them 15% discount. So, uh, and I said, look, <clears throat> if anybody in the club wants to become an agent, they can do. Just write in. 
I got over 100 agents on that first letter. And that was incredible. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, all of a sudden, I'm selling direct. And it wasn't long, probably a month or more than that, and these retailers, they were ringing me mm. and saying, uh, I believe you're selling direct to the athletic clubs. Well, we, you know, we normally sell to the athletic clubs. Uh, look, if you, you stop doing that, we'll stock your shoes. <laughs> and uh, I thought about it. No, no, I'm not going to stop doing that. Mm. Oh, you cut out the middleman there. Well, you, you know, sometimes they're, they're in the middle. That would cause well, a big problem to go back to that way. Yeah. Well, I said, look, you would get wholesale price. The athletics levels to get 15% off. And I know you probably give them 15% off anyway. So I'm not going to stop, but I will advertise that you will stop the shoes if that's what you want to do. Perfect. And I think 90% of the guys who rang up accepted that, that argument. But, you know, we're talking about the UK. We're talking about athletics, not a big market. But I knew, because Foster's had been supplying Yale University uh, 200 pairs of shoes every month. And these were the hand-sewn shoes. But I knew that market was big. So uh, I wanted to go to America. <clears throat> the guys in the company, brother and the wives, they were saying, no, 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 it costs too much. That's going to be, a you know, we can't afford that. No, okay. But I'm reading a book. It was a Eurosport, a sports book. And the government were advertising in there. Uh, they wanted us to export. And they were willing to pay for a stand and our return airfare to the NSGA show, that's National Sporting Goods of America, in Chicago. They were willing to do that, plus 50% of the hotel bill, if we would go and export. Well, again, a no-brainer. That was it. I had no resistance to me doing that. So in 1968, off I went with a friend, Bob Brigham. I went with a friend, and we went through Times Square. We actually stayed in, in, uh, in New York. Bobby looked at the outdoor stores. I looked at the sports stores before going on to Chicago. Chicago, brilliant, nice, four days. And uh, a lot of guys coming up saying, oh, love your product. Uh, where do I get this from? And I'm saying England. England. Is that New England? <laughs> uh, no, no, not New England. It's across the water. You know, England. Oh, is that near London? Uh, yeah, near London. Yeah. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. But I realized at that point that I needed... I needed to have product on shore in America. I needed a distributor in America. I'm 1968. When did I get there? 1979. 11 years. To 11 get years to get there. That's persistent sales. <clears throat> That's something very important for people to keep make a note of. It doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> no. I think people call it resilience these days. Yeah, resilience. <laughs> or, or, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. But um, we got a lot of luck. And the luck was that in late 60s, Athletics, running, in fact, road running, running, training, that became a big thing. It became a category. By 1975, there was a magazine called Runner's World, which started off as an A4 sheet. And by 1975, it was a full, glossy magazine. Bob Anderson was telling you uh, who'd run this race. Because about that time, a lot of half marathons, a lot of 5Ks, 10Ks, <clears throat> and everybody's out there. You know, we're talking about 360 million Americans, 10% were probably... Out there now running, uh, so we're talking about 36 million. Out there running. Fantastic. It's a big market. And uh, Bob Anderson thought he could tell everybody which shoe to buy. And he did. He said, the shoe to buy is Nike. That's the number one shoe. Well, Phil Knight's importing these from Japan. Can he turn up the, the sort of mechanism to get enough shoes out there? 
Because if we say there's 36 million runners, probably 3.6 million wanted to buy the number one shoe. You know, the Americans love, wow, we're going to get the number one shoe. He could never get the product there in time. And uh, one year later, Bob Anderson decides, oh, no, we're having another shoe. It was probably New Balance. So that happened only twice because then the retail trade was such a mess. Shoes were coming in, they were no longer wanted, and the ones that wanted, uh, nobody could turn it up that quick. So he changed to five stars, his star ratings. Five stars would be the number one shoe, and then he got down four, three, two. <clears throat> At that point, I knew we could make a five-star shoe, and we did, Aztec. Aztec's the five-star shoe. We tested this out <clears throat> as part of our gold range. Our gold range was Inca was a spike, uh, Midas was a road racing shoe, but Aztec was the road training shoe. That's where the volume was. And uh, it was great. We did that in uh, the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, and we got a shed load of gold medals. Great. Fantastic. So we're now February 1979, and I've got the stand again in Chicago, and I've got my shoe and along came Kmart, and Kmart wanted 25,000 pairs. Wow. And this shoe wasn't even a five-star then, but, but running was growing that fast. Oh, right. That was about six months' work for our small factory back in the UK. But, you know, we realised that if we were going to do, if we were going to go for a five-star shoe, we, we needed help. And Barter, biggest shoe company in the world, down in Tilbury, uh, they said they would help. I had a friend there. If you read the book, you'll pick up on what, why I had a friend there. We'll help you. Okay. But then came out and said, we want a better price. And, uh, right, I knew that meant that this wouldn't be made in the UK. It would have to be made in South Korea. Mm. But we'd already, again, made a contact with the biggest factory in South Korea. So we knew we could go there if necessary. And this looked like necessary. Fine. But I'm still there at the show. And along came Paul Fireman. And Paul Feynman, with his brother and his brother-in-law, they were running a wholesale uh, a camping business with tents, uh, outdoor business, tents, fishing rods, you name it. And Paul was obviously fed up of doing what he was doing. So he said, Joe, love to be your distributor, but we need a five-star shoe. I said, come on, have a look at this. Aztec. Uh, Paul said, yeah, well, you know, maybe it's going to be a five-star, but it's not there yet. I said, well... I think it's June or July when the, uh, the, the shoe issue of Runner's World was coming out. <clears throat> so he said, I'll be a man. If you get a five-star shoe, that's me in. And, uh, well, it's a long time from February to, uh, to the end of June when the magazine would come out. So I, again, come back to the UK, went out, had a look at uh, Paul Feynman's outfit, had a look at Kmart. I came out, I thought, well... It, I might get 25,000 pairs here, but it might be my first and last if I don't sell enough or they don't sell enough shoes on that square footage they're going to give to my product. Mm. But Paul, okay, small company, but you know, he had reps out there. And the main thing is, you, know, he, <clears throat> you can see when a guy is interested. This was not, he was not just came out a big operation. He was Paul Feynman, and uh, he wanted something different. You know, he was hungry. He could sell that. I think in, in America in those days, called you've got wrinkles in your belly. Mm. You're hungry. Mm. You need something. I could see that. But we needed a five-star. Paul came over to the UK because he wanted to see what was Reebok like. Of course, he didn't know Reebok. Mm. Not many people in America did. Um, and, of course, we, put, we had three events that he went to, and the winner was Reebok. I wonder why. 
Mm. You know, and fifty percent of the people running in those races were wearing Reebok. Mm. It was convinced. That's, That's it. clever. So okay. you used uh, social media. <coughs> oh my, well, not today. They'd be called social media influencers, really. But right. you know, you used people of influence that were successful to leverage them, lift the brand up. You're probably the first, one of the first companies to maybe leverage that 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 kind of model. Other people being right. successful, therefore, translated into your shoe being the best shoe. Yeah, I mean, we we use a lot of things like that, and uh, <clears throat> we, you know, marathons became city marathons became television. That was it. Everybody went watching these city marathons, and we set up our company Reebok uh, Racing Club. We set up Reebok Racing Club, where we would uh, sell shoes and we'd sell vests at cost price to athletes. We'd give them top athletes, and our top athletes used went into these races. They were not the ones who were going to win, but we said to the guys, look. Here's the kit, you get your shoes, just stay at the front as long as you can mm. in the television. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter that you don't win the race, but if you're up front, they're going to be seeing Reebok Racing Club, Reebok Racing Club, Reebok Racing They're going to be seeing that. So, you know, that's one of the things that we did. That, uh, <clears throat> again, using the media. But uh, we talked back down to Aztec, and uh, we came along, there. it was the end of July, I think it was, when the magazine came out, and I picked up the phone to Paul Feynman, and... Uh, I think I must have got him out of bed. He was a bit sort of dozy. <clears throat> Probably seven o'clock in the morning for him. I said, Paul, get down to the local kiosk. See if the runner's world's out. See if we got five stars. <clears throat> he did. An hour later, he came back. Joe, Aztec, five stars. Fantastic. That was it. So at that point, you're beating Nike, right? I mean, you're the five-star shoe. Well, yeah. Well, I think Nike also had a five-star shoe. I think it was about four, maybe five, five-star shoes. <clears throat> but the point is, we had one. Mm. So at that point, we were on the hook. Mm. We were going to go into the market instead of us push, push, push. And I had five or six failed attempts with different uh, good guys, but they couldn't get into the market. Mm. This one would bring us into the market. Mm. So, uh, but he also said, you've got uh, Inca, five stars, and Midas, five stars. We had three five-star shoes to get into the American market. Mm. And that changed our lives forever. That's amazing. I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Taylor Brands, for supporting this podcast and entrepreneurs. Taylor Brands are aligned with our mission to help you start and grow a business and already empower millions of customers around the world to kickstart their business. With their AI-driven one-stop shop for aspiring small business owners with everything you need to jumpstart your business, such as a logo maker, business mailbox, online and physical business cards, printed merchandise, social media tools, and so much more. To find out more about Taylor Brands and how they can help you, click the link below and get 40% off your first order using the code PEP. Now, let's get back to the podcast. What three steps in sales do you think people should take to make their business work? Well, first of all, you've got to recognise the uh, the industry you're into. Wherever, whoever's going to buy your shoe, you've got to recognise that and become part of it. The thing that we did with Reebok is that because we couldn't get into the retailers, the street on the street, we went direct to the athletes. That made us a different company. That made us the athletes' company and the athletes' shoe, and we dealt direct. So it's knowing who who is going to buy your shoe to begin with. So and, know, know your market fit. Try, yeah. try. I think go direct is probably a part of that too, right? People listening. Well, yes. If you, yes. If you, you know you know who your target audience is and you can reach them direct, it's a pretty good strategy for sales. I think, I think that's how I translate it. It is in those early days because... Uh, I mean, you can only sell one-to-one in that way. You, you can't get the broader business, which you've got to do as you grow up. 
But yes, get into the. But you build a fan base that way. I think that's that's because a lot of people today they think, oh, I'm going to sell a product and they want to get in a big retail store, which sounds great. But you might get in the retail store and then no one buys it because no one knows about it, right? So you're talking about a grassroots building process there in some some respects. Yes, to become an athlete shoe because uh, the the bulk of product is sold on the street. <clears throat> not for the not for the sport itself. So yeah, you know, I, I think that's fascinating. The whole sales process. So so the first step you kind of suggest is maybe people build that grassroots relationship as you did with the runners, and that led to the bigger retailers hearing that that was being sold direct to their potential customers. So in yeah. other words, you're you're potentially losing the business, but by by doing that, it made them wake up a bit and want to do business with you, right? So well, that's an interesting. I mean, sales they, they don't want to lose sales. Right. <clears throat> you know, if somebody's coming in and asking for that's what their job is, is, is to supply what the customer wants. Right. And you've got to send the customer in there. So it's getting getting the customer to go in the retail. <clears throat> and the main reason you want retail is because 90% of your shoes are going to end up on the street. Mm. They're not going to end up in races or whatever. Yes, good market. The, uh, the performance market is good, but it really is a marketing way of getting your shoes onto the, onto the street because that's where the volume is. And, and we knew that. Uh, so I guess where we start off, we start off by saying, okay, if you can't, you know, you've got to get your product seen, known, and demanded. Once the demand is there, you can then move to your bigger sales um, outlets, which is retail. And for us, going to America, because in, in America, every college, every university has coach, and uh, coach is a god, and you can go to a university on a on a scholarship, a sports scholarship. So that was the bigger market for us. So this is why we wanted America. But, you know, that's, that's not what really exploded for Reebok. Reebok were a nice company uh, doing $9 million, only $9 million. But our company was $9 million when Arnold Martinez, a tech rep down in Los Angeles, his, his wife, Frankie, she was going to aerobic classes. And in those days, nobody knew what aerobics was. And Arnold is saying to Frankie, you know, what are these aerobic classes? Because she was coming back with her friends and they're absolutely full of it. And Frankie said, well, we're exercising to music. Oh, really? Can I come down and look at what's going on? And he did. To the next one, he went down and he saw the instructor, instructor in sneakers, half the class in the same sneaker, and the rest of the class, nothing at all. So the instructor was influencing the class. Whatever she wore, whether it clothes or shoes, that was it. And he thought... Why don't we make a shoe specifically for aerobics? And that meant for women, because in those days it was just women. So they made a special last, just narrow for a woman's foot. And in America, a woman's foot is very narrow by comparison to Europe. And even so much different to Japan, the Japanese foot foot is so much wider. So this is why you have to have different lasts. This is what you grow into. But for those days, why don't we make that? So we too what they call the red eye, the plane overnight up to Boston, see Paul Fireman, goes into Paul Fireman and says, Paul, Paul, you should see what's going on down in Los Angeles. These girls, they're absolutely loving this. They're doing aerobics. And Paul is saying, whoa, 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 just a minute. I know we're a running company and we're doing very nicely. Yes, but, you know, this. no, no. We don't really need to be making a shoe for girls dancing. You know, we're a running company. We're athletics. So if it, if it gets somewhere, you know, it starts to come up, yeah, we'll do that. Arnold wasn't happy with that. And he went down to the back door. We were only small in those days. Went to the back door, saw Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett, he was in charge of production. He must have still told Steve a good story. 
because he got 200 pairs of uh, aerobic shoes mm. <clears throat> made from uh, glove leather, which I didn't know of at the time, made from glove leather, but he got these shoes, went down, gave them to the instructors and a few of the leading girls down there, and all of a sudden it took off. They, again, this, is, this went street. Mm. The shoes went street. The girls just didn't go to the aerobics classes. They were going to work in them. They were using them out for leisure and everything. They loved the shoes. It was so soft. Made in glove leather, and glove leather you can just tear it like a sheet of paper, mm. and this is what happened to the shoes. <clears throat> Half of them fell apart within within a month. Mm. But you know, we're talking about USA, we're talking about Los Angeles. The girls didn't care. They went out and bought a new pair of shoes. Had it been in the UK or many other countries, we'd have been dead at that particular time. Complaining <laughs> that they didn't last more than a month. Absolutely, yeah. But for high fashion, you almost entered the high fashion space. Well, 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 uh, yes, they, they became, the girls just wearing them. They, were, they would go to work in, in the uh, aerobic shoes, in the freestyle, and take the heels in, in the bag and put the heels on when they got to work. So they became, all of a sudden it exploded. Mm. Mind you, we did, we did have to get the, uh, the leather right. We moved from a glove leather to a, more of a garment leather. Mm. The tanneries realised that we, were, we needed something better. But the point here, I really love this insight. I, want, I hope the audience don't miss it in the fantastic story. You know, I think that sometimes when you're developing your sales strategy, what you think is core, let's say in Reebok's case with a running shoe, yes. is in fact not the core. The core is the quality of the product and how it makes people feel and its usefulness in any exercise ecosystem, right? And actually people got confused perhaps in that moment. Oh, no, we're not going to sell to those folks. I think a lot of people in business make this mistake. They don't, they don't understand the nuance of their product. So they hold firm. Oh, no, this is part of our brand philosophy. We only sell to right. X. And really in this sales point, I think you're saying, is you've got to widen your sales net and almost jump on new trends. And, and accept that uh, maybe the brand is useful to that demographic. So sell it to that demographic. Don't hold it back. But luckily you had that person kind of fighting for that. Otherwise, perhaps Reebok wouldn't be the company it is today, right? Well, is that... This is where your luck is. You know, your, your luck is what happens. And you're being there at the right time. Th these are the things that, that happen to you. <clears throat> so many people don't recognize the opportunity. They, they let it go by. And you've got to be able to take that opportunity. Okay, we were a $9 million company. And, Which uh, sounds like a lot of money for, for like 1970. It does sound like a lot of money, doesn't it? A lot of money nine, today, nine, I think. Nine if million million. listings got a nine million turnover, they'd be pretty happy, mm. I think. You know, I'm, I'm sure they would be. But you know, a year later, we were 30 million. Right. Then the year after that, we were 90 million. Right. Then 300 million, then 900 million. So it took us three, four or five years to get to one billion, but that's a very short time. Mm. And there were many problems along the road. Mm. One of the things that happened there is that, um, um, what was she called? The uh, Jane Fonda. <clears throat> Jane Fonda actually went and bought a pair of Reeboks and wore them in her, uh, in her videos, her exercise videos. She wore them. And that, of course, gave us another boost. Plus... You didn't have to pay her. These days, no, there's no way no, someone no. would wear a shoe without charging a fortune. Jane Fonda <laughs> wore your shoes and, and that yeah. was your sales strategy. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Not that she went out and bought them. Right. I mean, yeah, she actually <laughs> paid you to yeah. wear them, which would uh, not happen anymore, <clears throat> but I love it. Yeah, I, I know. But, that, but having said that, in fairness, there are a lot of brands that, that the celebrities just love and they yes. do wear them. Yeah. Yeah. So again, people listening shouldn't 
rule that out as an opportunity. There were some people will wear it because they love it and they can mm. get it in the hands of people that might just love it. I mean, I feel like, feel like Oprah's quite like that. She'll just say stuff that she loves. She loves it. You know, she shouldn't read your book, for example. Right. She would well, love we'll try, it. We'll like, try and get one to right, her. Try and get one to yeah. her. But, um, and if anyone listening knows Oprah, we, we want to get Joe's book in Oprah's hands because I'm sure she would love it. But that sort mm. of thing still happens. She would promote something because she loves it. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily because someone's endorsed her to say this book's great, right? So it's another great great strategy i think that that just try it get it in the front of the right people do you think um i mean the other thing i, th- I take from your story and i want the listeners to grasp is patience yeah. so you say luck which i i respect but i also think you were you stayed around and stayed in business if you, long enough if you stay there long to enough, get there yeah, to yeah. be in the trend the opportunity right? will so, come. Yes. yeah exactly i mean 11 years to get into america it's not like it just took off from day one so that patience people need it when they're doing sales but you've got to believe yes you've got to believe in yourself and believe that uh, your shoes as good as anybody's if not better mm. yeah and you've got to believe in that that you you will make it um, which, of course, if you keep going and you keep producing, you do get that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yes, I do call it a bit of luck, but like I say, being around for long enough, you get that. Luck is a skill. Yeah. Anyone listening, every time you hear the word shoe, insert your product name here. You know, like it, it, it could be candles, it could be shelves, it could be whatever it is, you know, like the, the basic principles, it's the same, isn't it? That relationship with customers, that persistence, and that ingenuity, that looking at new market opportunities that perhaps others are ignoring. Yeah, so. but I think I think we're also a bit lucky that uh, um, there's a lot of people fall in love with sneakers. You know, it's like uh, and apparel is a bit the same. But with a, with a shoe, <clears throat> a shoe has a it has a three D dimension. Mm. You know, if you're looking at apparel, apparel is usually pretty flat, mm. and you you can't hold it up. And but with a shoe, you know. It, it has its shape all the time. Mm. And, uh, I mean, these days things have moved to such a point now that people just buy sneakers. This is a really great point, though. <clears throat> I think I see today that people do form an attachment to everything that they buy. There is an yeah. emotional attachment. I think that's personally one of the reasons that Gymshark is so successful. People feel an attachment <clears throat> to that product beyond the physical. It's like an emotional attachment to the story, to its community, which is so overlooked, right? I mean, you were probably one of the pioneers in building a community around Reebok, right? People that actually felt passionate about that shit. Yes, oh That's yes, something yeah. people can install in their products, that that, that love yeah. for a product. I think you have to. And if you love it, other people will love it. But you have to see, people have to see that you love it. People have to see that you're enthusiastic. And that rubs off. Right. And you've got to build a team. <clears throat> you know, you can't come to a billion or we eventually in, in, in four billion. You can't get there without a lot of people being involved. Mm. And but what you got, your legacy has got to be that, that real enthusiasm. You know, people love the brand and they share everything. Now, if people share it and love it, they'll be enthusiastic too. So that when they go out and sell it, they believe in it. They, they've not just got a job to say, oh, "I've got some shoes here to sell." Would you like some of these shoes? No, they've got a you know, these are Reebok. Yeah, they, they're not just selling shoes, they're selling Reebok. Mm. And uh, and I'm sure other brands, very much the same. Mm. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, it was Reebok. Mm. Get that enthusiasm. Such a great, <clears throat> great story. Thank you, Joe, for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Your knowledge and story is amazing. I absolutely love all of it. We'll have to have you back on to tell more of your insights. <laughs> and anyone listening, please go and buy uh, Joe's book. You will learn so much about business and you will learn so much about how to build a business that you love. 
Joe, thanks. Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure. And yes, next time we can go back to 1895. And, you know, my grandfather was a genius. You know, people may think uh, maybe I've got a legacy, but I also think I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have such a history, which I'm sure that uh, now the ABG have got it, uh, you know, and it's in America, I'm sure it's going to take off yeah. even more. I think so, yeah. yeah. So um, if those guys are listening, they should uh, they should be interviewing you. I mean, it's just the history of the Reebok shoe is, is just incredible. And I think a reason that people will fall in love with it yet again, hearing your story. So thanks, Joe. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Right. Thank you, Simon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And I hope you got value from it. Please feel free to follow us on any of our social media channels. And if you have any questions about business, ask us. We will help you. Again, we want to thank our sponsor, GoDaddy, for supporting this podcast. From naming your business and buying a domain name to building a website for free, GoDaddy has you covered. GoDaddy provides us entrepreneurs with all the help and tools we need to grow a business online. You're not alone, entrepreneurs. See you in the next one.